Welcome to another expert podcast run by UNESCO's Inclusive Policy Lab. This is part of our expert series focusing on a post-COVID reset, meaning, of course, from our perspective, a reset along a more equitable and smart path. As usually in this series of podcasts, the conversation will revolve on the one hand around concrete policy measures that our invited experts see as being conducive to such a recovery, and on the other hand, on the data and the knowledge that we have, or maybe that we need, that could or that should inform the required policy shifts. Our expert today is Ariana Legovini of the World Bank, where she founded and leads the Development Impact Evaluation, DIME, group. Her expertise is in improving the generation and use of research in development practice and policy. Uh, Ariana works to understand and develop the institutions, the incentives, the processes required to generate actionable research. And all of these uh, issues are, of course, critical to the conversation we'll be having today. Ariana, welcome and thank you for accepting our invitation. Thank you, John and Julia, for having me. Thank you very much. My name is John Crowley, UNESCO's Chief of Research Policy and Foresight. And as often in this podcast series, I will be your host today. And co-hosting with me is my colleague Yulia Sevchuk, um, UNESCO's lead on inclusive policies and knowledge use in policy, who coordinates the work of the Inclusive Policy Lab. This podcast falls under our work stream on data for good. We'll be looking into new data, current data landscapes, and the use of data as a tool in and for governance. And running through this discussion, as always, will be the post-COVID recovery and the place of data in it. And with that in mind, what I'd like to start with is the question of data in connection with governance. In other words, data as an instrument, a tool, both in and for informed governance and decision-making. We've had some very interesting discussions in other podcasts, which I encourage you uh, to listen to if you haven't already, on how the private sector has seen massive investment in data culture and in the capacity to engage critically and absorb data in corporate decision-making. So with that in mind, but obviously focusing on the discussion between uh, representatives of international organizations this uh, time, where do the public sector and policymaking relevant to the public sector stand? Uh, how, Ariana, would you assess the progress being made in the public sector to transition from old-style data landscapes reined in by statistics in the very old 18th century sense of the word, ultimately, to a much more complex and faster evolving context of new data? Or to put it very crudely, what's 21st century data in the public sector, in your view? Wow. Okay, that's an important question, and it is work in progress. Uh, building the institutions for actionable evidence, what I would call evidence to inform decisions, um, it's a long process of building capacities in governments, and it has less to do with the type of data that is available, uh, and more with creating the capabilities to understand the value that data can add and the pathway through which we can um, uh, push policy action. I think um, in, in the case of government, new data, especially high frequency transaction level data, uh, has um, or adds some drip. Uh, in, 
In part, I think it's because visualizations of shiny data points attract our attention. They're watched, downloaded, shared like never before. But more importantly, high frequency transaction level data holds the promise for minute by minute flows of information that can inform decisions just in time. So you, you asked me about assessment and I think realistically, evidence is only informing a tiny portion of the policy decisions being made every day. For most of our history, data has been scarce and, and quite expensive to obtain. And so research has advanced, uh, especially in the public sector, the slow pace, uh, and especially so in data poor countries. But with the explosion of data from smartphones, mobile networks, e-services, and e-government, we can now envision a world where more and more decisions can be guided, informed, and evaluated um, by just-in-time research and evidence. So the, the private sector you mentioned is, is quite um, kind of a leader in this, especially large corporations from social media and others uh, who, have, who are using um, research and evidence on, on really on a 24-7 basis and a lot of experimentation with their client base to maximize profits or maximize viewership, etc. Um, I think the potential in the public sector is there, um, but the process has been quite more arduous to, um, to affect. Now, the the upside, though, of using it in the public sector and for public policy is to significantly shift the path of human progress. So it is quite exciting. The opportunities are huge. Um, there are also dangers. Um, uh, I feel that poor analysis, lack of understanding of inherent biases in the data we use, poor understanding of you know, comparative statics versus general equilibrium effects, a lack of understanding of correlation versus causality, et cetera, et cetera, can lead us to the wrong conclusions and wrong guidance. So the scarcity I feel that we now face is one uh, of limited high quality research skills and institutional capabilities to help us make sense of all the data and turn it into a positive resource for human progress. Thank you. And we we have much to uh, to come back on in, in what you were saying. Um, I'd like actually to make an almost immediate follow up, uh, which I, I think is, is very connected to what you were saying in terms of the barriers embedded in tr traditional statistical institutions and um, uh, procedures uh, with respect to the kind of vision you were presenting of real time data. To, uh, to inform policies. One is that in the statistical tradition, the, there's been a strong emphasis on um, clean, rigorous, technically well-designed data, and the data collected for a specific purpose. Whereas one of the challenges uh, which you've already referred to is that much of the data that is currently available and perhaps not sufficiently used is first dirty data it's very noisy. It requires a lot of work to make it usable. And secondly, it's data that was not collected for a particular purpose. It needs to be repurposed or repackaged in order to be made useful for a particular purpose. This makes it richer, but it creates challenges um, to the way in which public statistics have traditionally been organized. And then the second uh, big issue, perhaps even the elephant in the room, uh, is privacy and data protection uh, rules, uh, which often impede uh, the use of data from these kinds of sources, 
Uh, and indeed, often impede even the sharing of operational data from public institutions uh, across barriers. In many countries, for instance, uh, I think this example came up in a previous podcast in this series, um, social security administrations and tax administrations are forbidden from sharing data for reasons that are connected to uh, perceptions of privacy and, and individual freedom. Um, and while in the case of personal data, that is probably very defensible. In the case of anonymized pattern level data, it's probably very inefficient. So I'd just be interested in your views on those two types of barriers, the spirit of statistics and the data protection issues, and how uh, they um, impede public sector data use and how they could be overcome while respecting uh, the, the uh, very real concerns about uh, data protection issues. So I would start by saying that it is very rare for data to be ready for use, irrespective of whether it was collected for a purpose or whether it's collected as part of, uh, you know, the transformation in technology. Um, I find that um, the research is a great organizing principle to create data sets and data systems that can be applied to answering specific policy questions or specific research questions that are policy relevant. And, and, for, and for that, um, there's actually a lot of work that needs to go into uh, what I would call measurement framework, understanding what do we need to measure for what purpose and how can we measure uh, what we measure most efficiently. So in the past, this was quite an expensive process because every, almost everything was based on, you know, face-to-face -face, uh, surveys uh, in the field and kind of stretching our capacities to, um, you know, build measurement framework as we would have liked to build them. Today, the latitude of what we can go after is so large and exciting. And so, you know, in our best examples, for example, in uh, Rwanda, building a national data system to look at the impact of rural infrastructure on economic transformation. We have merged data from uh, firm and household surveys and censuses. We have merged administrative data from tax and land registries. We have gone out and collected primary data on uh, 63 different commodities in 150 markets to understand in real time changes in prices and quantities. We have merged that with data from GPS, from trucks, delivery trucks, uh, and so forth and so on. Uh, and you know, not everything has to be very costly. We can, you know, we can combine um, very detailed data from statistical agencies with data that comes, you know, almost automatically from those uh, GPS trackers and really increase the, um, the understanding and the dynamic understanding of uh, geographical space. So when we, when the government rehabilitates a rural road, we can tell almost in real time how that affects um, arbitrage opportunity between nearby markets and kind of shifting produce, increasing the returns to farmers and increasing the availability of food and averting food crises in some markets. So this becomes a quite exciting <laughs> operation that uh, we, we were never able to do before. So I, I don't really, 
um, focus on why the data is collected, but rather uh, how we work with the different data sources. What are the most efficient ways uh, of collecting quality data? And we do a lot of work comparing across different ways of collecting the same information and understand whether there are biases in those different ways and how do we address those biases? Because of course that's one important element in having good research that results in actionable, precise and actionable guidance. It is almost an ethical issue to deal with data in a responsible way so that the analysis results in answers that, that are actionable but will lead to better results as opposed to harming um, the very people that we want to help. On the issue of security, um, so this is something that we have uh, kind of really blew up in our face during COVID. Um, and specifically in uh, March 2020, we started um, a uh, task force on mobility. The idea was to leverage some of the research that we had done previously in using CDR data, data from telecom companies, to understand the um, transmission of other disease um, such as malaria and uh, and cholera and we used CDR data to understand how mobility and migration of people um, contributed to transmission of disease and we wanted to use these um, models and uh, and uh, type of data to provide dashboards to governments uh, to monitor mobility across their geographical space. And here we faced huge issues of accessibility of uh, tele telecom data, exactly because of the security issues that you pointed to, John. Of course, we don't want to use data to track people or specific type of people of specific ethnicities and have people empowered to track us down. These are huge issues. And so we developed you know, security measures that included only having access, for example, to average movements, um, not specific movements of individuals. And we worked on protocols for securing data and so forth and so on, but the difficulties in accessing the data became uh, um, quite binding in our ability to uh, kind of scale up across all the countries in the world, these tools and capabilities for governments to manage mobility issues in a more effective way. Now, the security issues were actually the World Bank just um, just approved its new data security policy, and my group has been working uh, uh, together with others in in the bank to develop all the guidelines on data securities. So, and, and these are very very similar, I think, to the um, security guidelines that have been implemented in the past by the EU. So everybody is becoming quite quite um, uh, more aware uh, of the need to and the responsibilities that we have uh, communally to use data in a responsible fashion. Um, at the same time, uh, as, you, as you said, John, we want to balance the value added that the data can provide to the betterment of human conditions and making sure that we use that data in a very responsible way as not to harm the, again, the very people that we are trying to serve. Thank you, uh, Yulia. I, I think you want to come in on this with with a follow-up question, precisely on on what governments need to be doing as a priority. 
Uh, yes, so we talked about the capacity of the public sector, of governments to use and engage uh, with the new data. Um, and you, Ariana, mentioned uh, several things, uh, the pace uh, of data production, the volume and the noise in, in that data and the risk of not making sense of it properly. Um, and that not making sense properly would skew the decision making and and the policy making. My understanding, I'm listening to you, and I I'm thinking that it's a very deep shift that is needed uh, on on the side of the governments and the public sector. Um, what do you think they should be prioritizing in terms of steps and critical areas to invest in and focus uh, in these fast stages of the shift and and of the change? So I've invested my whole career on the issue of how to increase capacities in governments to make more systematic use of data and evidence for the purpose of improving the uh, results and the effectiveness of public interventions. I would, um, I would say that my main answer is co-production. The co-production of evidence between research and practice is actually fundamental. Uh, first, because research skills are very scarce, and we need to focus them on the question that potentially can make trans transformative difference on the results. And so practice must help inform and shape the objective of the research. And second, because without putting the evidence into action, the value added of the research is lost. Thus, um, we need research our own research capacity to help build capacities and shape practitioners' capacities to put evidence into action. Um, really supporting the building of institutions um, and capacities over time. Now, it so happens that this takes a lot of time. Um, it is There are no short-term solutions to building capacities in governments for the systematic use of data and evidence. Um, in, in research, also making faster progress towards bridging the knowledge gaps, uh, which are huge, um, requires a different model of research, kind of moving from the micro-entrepreneurial, which is most common, uh, to a more corporate approach to building knowledge. At Dime, for example, we have invested in you know, a different research production function um, and, and associated workflows to really capitalize on our scale and specialize in the delivery of research. We have invested in thematic programs, in country research programs that are able to leverage both kind of the economies of scale and scope and generate you know, public, public good nature tools that we are making available um, to everyone in the research community. But I think more needs to happen from the research side, less competition and greater collaboration. This is one of the lessons I think we have learned from COVID, which is that once we have an objective really clear, when there is financing and the need to collaborate across many research centers around the world, we can find solutions very quickly. Uh, financing is a big constraint and collaboration is a, a, a large constraint from the research side. In public administration, um, I would say that uh, there is so much more than we can do. Uh, people generally, you know, working in government agencies, particularly in low capacity environments, can be quite hard on uh, public officials. They often lack the resources, the agency, the autonomy to take decisions that make a difference. And so 
I find that we can provide a lot of excitement in these discussions by empowering public officials to set the agenda, to be active participate, participants in the process of what I would call adaptive and iterative research that provides them with the training, the tools, the information, the understanding on how to affect change and kind of see the light at the end of that tunnel. Uh, I find public officials respond very positively to um, the excitement that we ourselves feel that we can make a large and significant difference in results. And so we focus on training and learning by doing, investing tools, dashboards. Mostly we invest in accompanying the whole process of design and implementation of policies. So this is, I think, one uh, shortcoming of development agencies that they focus a lot on design and financing, but very little on accompanying process while they happen. And so kind of helping um, programs and policies on the ground experiment, find, finding for themselves really a focus on local knowledge and how that local knowledge can inform their decisions in real time. Gets everybody excited and motivated to invest more. So I, I don't think I've answered really your question in terms of what, you know, all the things that need to happen in government, but I would say that kind of motivating and increasing the understanding of what data and research can help people do in, in increasing results and documenting their own successes, negotiating their own budgets and so forth and so on, can be quite powerful to move that ship in the right direction. Thank you. You did reply to, to my question and uh, you took it uh, a bit farther in the sense of saying that it's not only new data the government should be uh, focusing on and developing their new capacity in, but it's also um, a matter of integrating different forms of knowledge, such as research or statistical data, new data, and making sense of those as a coherent whole and using all of those for policymaking. Having um, discussed in quite general terms issues to do with data and governance, I'd like to move now in the second part of our discussion to questions more specifically about the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. Um, the extent to which the pandemic has, if it has, changed uh, the world of data and perhaps more importantly, the realization um, on the part of ordinary citizens, policymakers, uh, analysts of the power of data and its possible uses and perhaps also misuses in uh, collective decision making. Perhaps never has there been so much discussion about quantitative indicators in the context of often very polemical and complicated discussions about difficult policy choices. So uh, given uh, the pace at which decisions had to be made in the uh, face of the pandemic, given the need for real-time data uh, to inform those decisions, do you think COVID has changed the game with respect to the policy data connection? Uh, has it um, perhaps done something to expose the kinds of capacity gaps we were talking about earlier and perhaps um, uh, convince people who might have been skeptical that uh, there's now a need to invest much more uh, in real-time reactive 
uh, data that is much more comprehensive than the slow, deliberate pace of uh, statistical investigation. How much difference has COVID really made? I think COVID greatly increased awareness among policymakers on the dearth of information they faced to act on the crisis. And so demand for real-time analysis surged quite substantially across all of our client base and stimulated a lot more work from our side as well. Um, but I would say that, you know, it is very easy to be interested during crisis and it is much harder to sustain efforts uh, once crisis uh, ease out. My permanent argument to everyone who wants to hear is let's invest today um, because things will happen in the future and you have the same questions and you don't want to um, be unprepared. So I would like to give you a couple of examples actually of you know investments that we made before the crisis and how they were used during the crisis. How much more uh, readiness allowed us to be um, very forthcoming with support to governments when and ex exactly when they needed it. In Rwanda we've been working for 10 years with many different agencies in government to kind of build, build on their already very uh, good administrative systems and complement them with a greater amount of information. That is really our base, best case scenario for being able to provide daily information to government on uh, the effect of the crisis, the effect of the urban lockdowns on, on uh, the rural economy, um, being able to look across you know, price changes across many different commodities and really target those farmers or those sectors that were adversely affected. Now I want to give you an example from Nairobi, which is I think a, a little different. Um, so in, in, um, in back in 2015, I, I met someone John, called John Macharia. He was uh, the founder and head of a company who um, that uh, insured matatus or informal minibuses in uh, public transit in uh, in Kenya. And we discussed issues of road safety, and he made available to me all the data that he had on road crashes. And since then, he actually died himself in a car crash more recently, which was uh, a travesty. But since then, you know, he, we worked um, to build a system, uh, a, a data system for managing, um, for managing the urban space. So the almost, you know, no progress has been made on the sustainable development goal to cut mortality on the roads by half around the world. And this is, you know, the number one cause of, of untimely death of our youth. So the question we pose in that context was, is it possible to use data to target and prioritize investments on an urban landscape? Where, they, where those investments matter most. And so we digitized um, seven years of police records on car crashes. Uh, literally, we went through all the police stations in Nairobi and, and collected all the paper, um, paper reports and, and created a data, um, uh, digital data on those crashes. But then we realized that the data was not sufficient. And we started you know, um, developing algorithms 
to geolocate and timestamp Twitter reports by bystanders across the city. We then hired the delivery company to guarantee the crashes in real time. We overlaid data with Uber data, weather data, Google data, created the first real-time crash map of Nairobi. So, and then we went out and collected survey data and video analytics to understand both the infrastructure issues in hotspots as well as, you know, behaviors of people on the road. So I'm, I'm going a little bit in details in this just to say that, you know, one of the results of, of, of this work was that we found out that only 1% of the road network represents more than 50% of the death occurring in the city. And the 71% of those deaths are pedestrians, what I call the, the walking poor, because they don't have enough money to actually use the public transport system. And they die on the road um, in about 150 kilometers out of the possible 4,500. And by investing in that less than 1% of the road network, we could actually save so many lives that you know die unnecessarily and untimely and through saving those lives we can actually you know save those families from short financial um, hardship and disaster now this was developed before the crisis clearly but during the pandemic we were able to use that system to to provide real-time information to government about the effect of lockdowns, the effect that those lockdowns had on mobility, but also on speed on the roads due to lower traffic levels and the increase and spike in crashes and mortality around the time of the curfews, as people were speeding to get home on time before they would be stopped by the police. And so kind of, you know, um, and, and the same system and the same algorithms can be used to um, geolocate and, and uh, timestamp other other types of events in the cities, like like crime or mudslides or envir other environmental um, environmentally caused uh, disasters around the city. Help the city develop ways to both uh, predict, plan and manage crises in real time. Thanks for, for, for those examples, which are really very telling. What this points to is, is a kind of three-way connection at a minimum, uh, which is a, a data ecosystem that involves both multiple, not necessarily coordinated sources of data. Uh, secondly, the capacity to crunch that data, including in experimental ways that are looking for patterns without necessarily having a hypothesis about what patterns there might be. And then, of course, uh, the sensitivity of policymakers, which might include corporate uh, policymakers as well as public policymakers, to actually pay attention to what emerges from the data, even if it clashes uh, with people's um, uh, prima facie understandings of how things work. And as we know, um, this is at the heart of the social sciences, of course, and we know this very well in our in our UNESCO work. Um, overcoming the barriers of common sense is often one of the big challenges to uh, using the outcome of uh, data-driven approaches. If something clashes with what you think must be right, then you will tend to ignore it and find reasons to dismiss it, and that is obviously a barrier to um, uh, to to be overcome. So. 
Um, I think Julia wants to go a bit further uh, in, in this regard. Yes, so uh, we are talking about uh, all of these examples and they are fascinating, uh, um, but in many cases these are sporadic uses of data and in crisis indeed many governments uh, had access uh, to the new data and really used it uh, extensively uh, to inform their decision making. But beyond the crisis, given the complex ownership of data and stewardship of new data, and much of it lies really with the private sector. Beyond the crisis, do you think the governments will have systematic and systemic access to this new data? Can they rely on this data for policy making in the longer run, not just in times of crisis? I, I think it's quite realistic. Um, but it, it does take time and effort. I mean, this is not going to happen just by accident. Um, so I say first investments in e-government, as I mentioned earlier, um, in the last few decades is generating a huge amount of largely untapped data. This is, you know, the, these sources continue generating uh, larger and larger amount of data. And the interest from these agencies, as we see it, is has increased a lot. And so these are these are uses of data that are not one time, but it is a process of of learning how to use their own data for the purpose of um, identifying more and more way of doing better. And, and it is a long process. The research agendas have just started in, in many of these areas. Um, I mentioned working with justices, I mentioned working with procurement um, data, um, electronic billing for tax data, all of all of these areas are very important. Now, you mentioned the, the private sector data. Um, and, and here um, we overlay really public sector with private sector data. It is proprietary uh, in many cases, it is true. But a lot of it is publicly available and can be scraped directly from the web. In the case of road safety in Nairobi, we scraped a quarter million tweets from the web to uh, for the for a period of eight years to geolocate and timestamp road crashes. In the case of um, even in case of, of public of uh, government data, we scraped uh, 80 million records from the web in the case of the Indian justice system across all court levels. Now, it, it required quite a bit of effort. Uh, I'm not dismissing the effort, but, but it is possible to gain access to a lot of data. And, and the second point I want to make about private sector companies is that we have found a huge increase in interest in those companies in making a difference in development. And so we are working with telecom companies, social media giants. We are working with huge commerce platforms um, and transport companies all over the world to use their data and um, and put it to good use. Listening to you, I was thinking that uh, we made uh, a full uh, circle. Uh, uh, you're saying that there is a lot of data generated on the public sector through the e-governance. Um, and if uh, there is need for more data, there are many different sources and possibilities of getting it from the private sector. The challenge is not getting data. From what I hear you saying, the challenge is making sense of it. 
Yes, I would agree with that. Definitely. So following from that, um, and given the need to uh, create data systems that actually support understanding as well as action, what in your view are the, the key areas that researchers in various um, areas of research, and perhaps you might want to differentiate economists, sociologists or whatever, uh, need to dig deeper into? What are the key knowledge gaps on data and data systems at the moment uh, that could be answered perhaps by the kinds of initiatives that international organizations can promote? My own opinion uh, is that we have we spend too much time uh, focused on kind of general statistics and indicators and too little time on really using research and policy relevant research question as the organizing principle um, to de both develop the data systems um, to answer those policy relevant questions and to increase the motivation and awareness for having those data systems in the first place and sustaining them over time. Increasing appreciation of data, I think it's step number one um, to get things moving in the right direction. And you know, we we have pushed governments to to collect data for a long time, but without giving them a reason to do so. And data, the resulting data quality uh, was very low, um, and rightly so, so to speak, because nobody was using it for any good purposes. Why put so much energy into it? The main constraint that I would like to point to is financing. There is still very little understanding, not from the private sector. I think they're fairly clear that that is the way to maximize their profits. But from from the kind of uh, development institutions and public sector, there is very little understanding that research is not additional cost, but the research pays for itself. Um, I, I want to give you some examples of that. We worked in Ghana on a project to increase tree planting. And uh, we worked to uh, introduce financial incentives, which triplicated adoption or participation in that program. And then we worked to optimize those incentives. By optimizing those incentives, we were able to double the number of communities um, being serviced by this project without increasing the cost and increasing effectiveness, total effectiveness of 70% over the baseline. Um, we only spent about half a million dollars to increase um, the size of that program um, by a factor of two and increasing the effectiveness of the, that program by a factor of 70%. In the case of um, Cote d'Ivoire, we, we ran a um, uh, heterogeneous impact analysis across the, the participants to a cash for work program. Very vulnerable populations, all deserving of being included in a social protection program. However, we, what we found is that women were able to extract twice as much value from that program. And that by retargeting the program uh, more heavily towards women, the effectiveness of that program could be increased by 70%. Again, this is another example where the research was a tiny amount of that 
um, the program's cost. And by using research, we were able to increase the effectiveness by huge margins. I have so many examples of this uh, across all of our work that says that, by in, that we need to invest not uh, in any specific ideas, but really in the adaptive role that research can play in changing the path of design and implementation of public policy. Not as an afterthought, not as an ex post evaluation, but as part and parcel of the way we do things by creating those data capabilities, by experimenting with different options, by entering a path where all the decisions or a lot of the critical decisions in the evolution of any program and policy is guided by uh, a process of research that can really shift our understanding and shift our priors. Thank you. I, I really like that approach because it, it brings together the two dimensions of construction that social scientists like to emphasize, the fact that data are constructed, of course, epistemologically in the sense that they encode a certain way of thinking about the world. And of course, they're also constructed technically and institutionally. Uh, data isn't there like uh, mushrooms in the autumn forest to be simply picked up from the ground. Uh, there is an active process of making it in order to be able to uh, use it. And I think those are really important points for anyone interested in data to uh, keep in mind. Uh, well, the last question is always about recommendations for policymakers and for the public sector. So when it comes to the new data and it's better and more effective use in policymaking and decision making, what are your key recommendations, and we've been talking about this throughout the podcast, but if, if you could distill those those pointers, um, could you tell us what are the most important? Hmm. Okay, so that turns out to be a little difficult um, to distill a few. Uh, I would say, you know, it, it is uh, important for policymakers to ask, not everybody can specialize in data and research um, but to demand to demand um, that programs and policy and advice be based on uh, good data and research should be um, their priority and I say the priority because I do believe that the type of research that can help that type of adaptive, high rigor research that can help them navigate uh, implementation of their programs and policies is actually the next best investment. The investment that has the highest return um, to um, relative to its costs. Become informed, become informed consumers, um, investing in uh, in an insufficient understanding to ask the people that provide those services, those data and research services, the right questions and figure out whether the advice they get is the right advice would also be in my priority list. The, the other is to, um, you know, invest in having some, um, However, however many as possible within each context and, and each uh, and the constraints that they face, but to have dedicated teams that can interface and be 
um, the ones that we can work in building the internal capacities to sustain the efforts and to um, expand those efforts over time. I feel from our side when I when we work with agencies, it, it takes a decade uh, for an institution to to own their data and their ability to analyze it, um, that we can help with dashboards and trainings and so on, but that there is a lot that needs to happen internally to align and empower the people who deal with um, data and research internally to translate into uh, lessons. The the face-to-face -face is a fundamental element. People, people thinking that papers will make a difference. Um, they make a difference for like-minded people. They make a difference to other researchers, but they don't make a difference on the ground. And we're investing in the face-to-face -face and the institutions through which conversations happen and linkages between what we do and what we know kind of happen, I think is um, a great priority. There is an opportunity. Uh, a lot more resources are available today on, uh, you know, digitization projects and um, and investing in uh, even more um, digital systems. Those those uh, clearly can be leveraged uh, and linked, uh, not just contracted out, but linked to these institutions for thinking what is most important for us to build on knowledge on, what are the opportunities to contribute to the policy making process. So linking, linking the ITs to the thinking um, is a, a huge opportunity moving forward. Thank you. I think we've had a really great conversation. The time flew and I think we've, uh, we've maybe not resolved anything, but we certainly raised and addressed and given pointers towards the solutions to a whole range of really uh, exciting questions. So thank you very much, uh, Ariana, for spending uh, this time with us. Thank you, uh, Yulia, for co-hosting. I hope you enjoyed it too, as I'm sure the audience did. Um, and I really look forward to continuing these conversations on other occasions, perhaps in other settings, and of course, to coming back to some of these issues uh, in future podcasts for the Inclusive Policy Lab. Ariana, thank you so much again for all your insights and for giving us your time. Thank you, John, and thank you, Julia. This was great. I really enjoyed myself. Thank you to both of you.